Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Hi, I'm Patty Murphy, your host on this episode of the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Jeff Fascinelli, who is an FDNY battalion chief assigned to Battalion 18 in the Bronx. Jeff joined the ranks of the FDNY in 2001 and previously served in Ladder Company 40 in Harlem as a firefighter, Engine Company 67 in Washington Heights as a lieutenant, and Engine Company 23 in Midtown Manhattan as a captain. Jeff is a program manager for the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative, as well as the FDNY Command Course for Battalion Chiefs. He holds a bachelor's degree in fire science from the University of New Haven. Chief Fascinelli, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate you having me. I'm so excited to feature you on the show. Personally, we don't work together directly very often, but we're always in each other's periphery, so I'm excited to sit down and get to know you better. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to do it. Yes, without a doubt. Thank you for all your help with uh, the MPI program as well. Oh, thank you. So let's start from the beginning. Sure. You joined the ranks of the FDNY in February 2001, which is 23 years ago this week, actually. Absolutely. Our uh, My anniversary, our anniversary from our probie class was actually on Sunday, February 4th, uh, 2001. So 23 years, yes. Oh, awesome. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. So when did you know that you wanted to be a firefighter? So I'm from... Uh, Bay Ridge, Sunset Park, Brooklyn, and I grew up around the corner from, uh, like, up the block from 114 truck, and 278 engine was down the block from a single engine, and I used to always see the fire trucks, so when I was a kid, I was just always intrigued by it, and uh, my, my parents tell me a funny story, actually, that when I was really young, I, I wanted to be a fire truck, and then when they realized, like, like you can't be a truck, you got to be a firefighter, I was like, all right, so I guess I was upset <laughs> I couldn't be a truck, and I realized I couldn't be it, so I said, all right, I'll be a firefighter, and it's just kind of one of those things you just always wanted to do, and uh, just kind of followed, followed through with it, and... And here we are 23 years later. So upon completion of probationary firefighter school, you were assigned to Ladder Company 40 in Harlem. Yes. What was your experience like as a probie, especially as someone who didn't have really a personal connection to the job? Uh, I didn't, right. I have no I have no fire, uh, no family in the fire department mm-hmm. or anything. So there was four of us that went to the firehouse, two to Engine 37 and two of us to Ladder 40. I was 23 when I got sworn in, and then I had turned 24 in May, and I went to the firehouse right around 4th of July, I believe, of 2001. So I, was, I had not much life experience. I mean, I went to college, yeah. obviously. But I was uh, in a firehouse where there was very senior, senior firefighters. Mm-hmm. They were in a transition of the captain. Or the, the, the captain that was there was Captain Jack Rin, who came on in like 1960. Mm-hmm. And he spent 40 years in the job. And um, he was just phasing out as we came in. Just all the bosses were super senior, super senior firefighters. Like most of the firefighters that came on with came on in the 70s That when I was there. So they're grown men, 40s and 50-year-old. And here I am, this 24-year-old yeah. guy, like trying to figure out what's what. And, um, you know, I, I kind of laughed a little bit because they said, oh, here comes an Italian guy. Good. He can cook. 
And that was like nothing further from the truth because, uh, you know, living in my family, like my grandmother would do the cooking, my mom would do the cooking, and they would kick me out of the kitchen if I went in there. So I didn't know the first thing about cooking. So I'm like, nah, I'm sorry, I, I can't cook. They're like, what? So uh, so I learned. I learned how to do a lot of stuff, um, you know, as a firefighter and uh, very impressionable. I was 24 years old, learning, a yeah. uh, single guy, trying to, you know, do the right thing and, and – um, you know, if you made mistakes, they would let you know right away. Just to just to look from the senior guy, you, he didn't have to say anything. You knew you kind of made a mistake. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like anybody else, um, I would learn. And, and what was unique too was uh, forty truck was a tiller apparatus. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I wanted to drive the back, but that, that didn't happen right away. But I, I credit with the way I operate today, kind of to the design of the apparatus and how they taught me to operate. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, as a chief now, we have to kind of slow everything down and take in the bigger picture. So for my earliest years in 40 Truck, uh, once I started getting the OV position and learning how to drive and be back there, just by the design of the rig, you know, I'd have to check with the chauffeur first before I can get off the rig and, like, do my thing. And then when you climb down with the, from the rig, uh, after you spoke to the chauffeur that he's happy where the rig is positioned, I'd have to open the ca- uh, cabinet, get my SCBA out, put it on. Whereas if you're from a towel ladder or a rear mount, you know, you're not talking to the chauffeur really much. You're getting your mask, you're off, and you're off to the races. Now, because of the design of the rig, I'm slowed down, checking with him, get my get my gear on, grab mm-hmm. my tools. I'm looking at the building, listening to the radio. Mm-hmm. So for my earliest days doing that, it's kind of taught me to slow things down. And, uh, and that paid dividends when I got to Midtown, which we can talk about also. But just working with senior guys... Um, did I go to as many fires as I would have liked? No. I mean, like, you know, the, the city was not the 70s and the 80s. This is the early 2000s. I mean, I went to some fires. It was great. It's, uh, it's Harlem, so there's a lot of history there. Working with all great companies, great chiefs. It was a great experience there, and I, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate that insight into how you learn to compartmentalize and be intentional in a stressful, chaotic environment. Early on, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And just watching the example that the senior senior firefighters set, seeing how they operated, seeing how they spoke on the radio. Now, when I first came on, not everybody had a radio. It was just mm. uh, certain positions: the chauffeur, the boss, uh, the roof. I believe the OV, not the not the can and the irons didn't have it, so we had to stick with the boss and everything. So mm. uh, it was still different. Things were different back then, you know. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah. So it was good. Is there anyone in particular that helped you in your development? Any firefighters or fire officers? Uh, and in what ways? Absolutely. So hands down, the lieutenant, I would say, uh, well, a couple of lieutenants, uh, but Pops Roberts, we called him, Tom Roberts. He <laughs> was a firefighter in 34 uh, truck. I believe he was uh, either in probie school or, or, or like one class apart from uh, Chief Kilduff uh, in 34 truck. Uh, and that's the kind of caliber of this of man this guy is. He's unfortunately passed away from esophageal cancer, uh, 9-11 related a few years back. But he was just like super squared away at a fire. Uh, and he was great for the younger, he was a good, you know, he had a lot of time, but he was great for the younger guys. He would drill with us and show us the stuff. And he was a good bridge uh, for me, uh, you know, to work with the senior guys. Mm-hmm. So he was great to work with. And then the senior guys in, in, in 40 truck. And now Jimmy McNamara, believe it or not, he started out in 37 engine. But he had went to 26 truck. I know you've, you've interviewed him in the yeah. past. But, uh, you know, like George Jose, uh, Kevin Kelly, who's legendary. There's all these, like, super senior firefighters who have, you know, came on in the late 70s and have been to a bunch of fires. They have a lot of reps under their belt. Yeah. And uh, just, like I said, those are the guys that they just have to just look at you and you know, like, you're not doing the right thing or you should be doing this. And they were just great to follow their example. Or if you get off the rig, if you had the roof or the OV, they'd give you like tips. I, you know, watch for this, do that, and they kind of just guide you. So it's almost as if you have like your, like your uncle or like your, you know, like your great uncle there saying, "Hey, listen, uh, you know, to take you under your wing and like they help you out." So, mm-hmm. you know, I had that experience. So it was great. You mentioned 9/11 a couple times already, mm-hmm. and obviously you came onto the job in 2001. Yes. 
you were a probie I was. on the morning of 9-11. Yes. So do you mind talking about that experience, what you learned about yourself, the job, the city? Absolutely. So I wasn't working that day. I, I came home from 40 Truck on uh, Sunday, so I guess that would be the 9th of September, and I wasn't due back until Wednesday. Mm-hmm. But obviously I got the phone call. So, you know, I was still single living at my, my parents' house. Uh, it was actually it was a beautiful day, if you remember. Yeah. It was like not a cloud in the sky. I was planning to go for a run, and my firehouse called me, and like, oh, you have to come into work. So, you know, I'm still the new guy. So I'm thinking, I'm like looking for the angle here. Like, you know, I didn't have the TV on or anything. So I had no uh, situational awareness. And I have to come in. Like, I'm not doing until tomorrow. And they're like, no, no, are you watching the news? I'm like, no. They said, put the TV on. So I put it on and I see both built. I'm like, oh, I, all right. So I, I live in Rockland County. I um, shoot down over the GW Bridge. And as I was crossing over to drive to my firehouse, both buildings were burning. They hadn't collapsed yet. And I got to 37 and 40, and um, we watched the one tower collapse on TV at the firehouse. And, um, you know, they were regrouping us, and we ended up going over towards uh, Engine 58 and Ladder 26. We were on uh, on a bus, and they brought us over, and we came down uh, the east side. We had The bus was packed with people. We had uh, equipment and stuff. I remember I was with Mike Buckheit, who was lieutenant from 37 Engine at the time, and he said, all right, stick with me. I said, okay, so I was with him, and I forgot who the other firefighter was. Uh, I think it might have been Drew Kane, actually. We were firefighters oh. from the CSU. Mm-hmm, yeah. I'm pretty sure Drew was there, too. And I'm trying to remember. It's so, you know, it's okay. some things I remember like it was yesterday. Other things I'm like, I can't remember. But anyhow, we're on the bus, and we ended up coming around from Battery Park. So we came through, like, the, uh, the east yeah. side, and we came from, you know, below the Trade Center. And I remember getting off the bus and Buckheit saying to me, Jeff, just stick close to me. And I'm like, all right. And uh, it was just, like, eerily quiet. And uh, there was like a gray mass right where we stopped and it ended up being a body, which we couldn't, I didn't even see any blood because there was so much of that gray stuff. It just kind of was like this thing. I remember they took a traffic cone and put it right next to it. And uh, we just walked. And uh, I just remember seeing papers burning. and uh, Papers like floating rather in the air coming down, things burning everywhere and just being eerily quiet. And like, what the heck? It was just uh, almost like you ever walk out in a snowstorm where everything's like mm-hmm. real like muffled? That's how it kind of seemed to me, uh, like a surreal type thing. Um, so, you know, and then we went to work. We were doing the Bucker Brigade and stuff. And uh, I remember they were saying, now oh, you're a probie. If there's any voids, you can't search them. You got to stay out of the voids. I'm like, all right. So we were just like, I was handing buckets back and forth doing that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, then we were told, they made like uh, announcements on, on megaphones. Like the following, this is hours later. We were there for when Building 7 collapsed. We were over by the uh, high school. They moved us out of the area. We watched that one collapse. But we weren't in any danger. We saw it come down. That was a 47-story building, I believe. And they made an announcement. They said, all right, we, the following groups are working tomorrow morning because we still had to provide coverage for the rest of the city. Yeah. Now, I mean, this is way above me. I'm a probie. I'm still trying to figure out what the heck is what. And I remember we had one guy in our firehouse who used to be a bus driver. And uh, there was a bus sitting somewhere on West Street, I believe. I think we were. And um, just a bunch of us got in it. And he cleaned the windows off and just drove and uh, dropped people off on the way up the west side. He, like, commandeered and, that bus? Yeah, yeah, we just took it. Wow. Yeah, it was just sitting there. So he started it up. We cleaned the windows. and Because we, we had to get back uptown. Like, you know, yeah. there was no, nothing was organized. So we just took it uptown. And if you're familiar with, um, you know, 125th Street, so it's on 12th Avenue, kind of like by the Dinosaur Barbecue, 130 oh, something wow, Street. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there's a uh, the Manhattanville Bus Depot. So I remember clear as day. Those of us from 37 to 40, you know, we dropped the bus off and uh, we just kind of walked down and, and they just left the bus there. And, and 
like whatever. We had to we had to find yeah. our way back uptown somehow. So that's what we that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we walked back to the firehouse. So uh, did you was, report back to the site after that, or um, you continued to just? So yeah. So uh, what happened was we were doing like uh, twenty four on twenty four off. Guys were going down on their days off mm -hmm. to go help out and stuff. So I did that a little bit, um, not too much in the beginning. You know, my captain. We didn't have an assigned captain. We had a covering captain there. We had Tony Montero for a while. Then we had uh, Ronnie Gilliard who ended up getting the spot. And he's like, you know, uh, just be careful. You're a pro because we didn't really have any experience. We just came out, you know, we, that's like the worst case of all worst cases, right? And, you know, so they're responsible for us. So they were kind of watching out. But we did go down. But then in, in March of 02, they were doing 30-day uh, details down to the Trade Center. So I, I volunteered myself and, and one of the other guys from so we came off probation in february uh i don't think they would take you uh, as you were a probie so february of 02 we came off probation so then we stepped up for the february uh, for the uh, march of 02 detail mm -hmm. and uh, we went down to the trade center for the 30 days so instead of reporting to work for the for that for that Understood. month we we went mm -hmm. down and, uh, and worked uh, at the trade center uh in march of 02 and that was a pretty productive month in, the, in, in as far as recoveries go because uh and I'll make sure I get this straight now. They, they used to break it up by the construction company. Like the, the Tully Road was Tully Construction. The South Tower collapsed first. I believe they concentrated on the North Tower because they had like government stuff in there from what I understand. So they concentrated on the cleanup on that one. So by the time March came around, and I hope I don't have this backwards, but I'm pretty sure from what I remember, the South Tower, which is where the Tully Road was, um, was the first building to collapse. That's when we got there in March, they were starting to concentrate on that one. So we were finding a lot of stuff because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, firefighter remains, tools. I remember finding like a, a Halligan. I remember finding regulators and like, and you know, turnout coats and stuff. So we, it was a productive month in, as far as uh, recoveries go because mm -hmm. we started working on that area where mm -hmm. that was the first building to collapse. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure they concentrated on, like, on building seven in the North Tower, uh, which collapsed second. But I think they had like assets they wanted to recover there quicker so they kind of worked there first and like I said by the time we got there it was the first tower that that collapsed of where we were working yeah there was such a unified effort after 9-11 and definitely a sense of patriotism absolutely did you ever consider that this was too dangerous of a job that this wasn't something you wanted to pursue long term after oh uh, no not at all no matter of fact uh, if anything it was the opposite right. like i was super proud to be yeah. just uh, uh, an american a new yorker yeah. part of the fire department even though i was so new uh, you know uh, no not not at all it just kind of reaffirmed me that this is great i mean mm -hmm. um yeah, absolutely. No, I was, yeah. uh, and, and you know, like people came from all over the place. Like there was firefighters from other cities and stuff that were there and like, mm -hmm. you know, everybody was helping out. So I think it was just a time of being, just being human, you know, like it's like a huge tragedy. We're all just kind of like, whatever, who cares what religion you are, what color you are. It didn't make a difference. Like we're all, <laughs> we're, we're all human here. We need to, to band together and get this done. And that's exactly what happened. So, yeah. yeah. So as your career progressed, you were promoted to lieutenant in 2006, which is kind of a short period of time in the grand scheme of things. Absolutely, yeah. I, it was very quick. I mean, uh, timing is everything. I uh, did well on the lieutenant's exam. Mm -hmm. uh, got promoted in August of 2006 to lieutenant. Yep. So um, just the way it worked out. I would love to have been a firefighter longer. I was having a great time in Engine 37 and a lot of 40, and, uh, but uh, just... That was part of the, the city's recovery or the department's recovery it, efforts. Yeah, right. So things are moving quicker, and right. the, you know the timing. It was timing was everything. So uh, you know I did well. There was a July class was the first group, and then I was in the second group, which was August, a month later, and uh, I got promoted to lieutenant. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I came out of flips right after the Carpluck and Riley fire, and mm -hmm. uh, like one of my first couple yeah. tours was in engine. I was assigned to the seventh division. Mm -hmm. One of my first few tours covering was in engine forty two. 
you know, when you come out of flips, you know, and, and anytime you're new into a rank, you want like you're full of like you want to go out there and train and drill and do all this stuff. And I walk into a firehouse where they lost their beloved lieutenant. Right. And uh, you know, I just kind of just there was a lieutenant there at the time, uh, Lieutenant Wall, like a super senior guy, like type A personality, take charge of everything. And he was kind of running the whole place, like coordinating everything. So I just basically just sat in the corner, took the runs in and kept quiet. Like it was kind of a surreal, like I, I felt terrible for them, you know, yeah. like the whole tragedy. Um, but uh, that's right when I came out of Flips. I, I was assigned to the 7th Division, covering around, uh, did a couple tours in 42 Engine right right after that whole thing went down. And then uh, started bouncing a little bit. And, uh, you know, the timing is everything in our job. And the way things uh, worked out, I was able to uh, to get assigned to Engine 67 in uh, March of 07. Right. So I only bounced for eight months. I know some people bounce for a long time. Uh, I, I always see J uh, Jimmy Brosey, who's our union president. He always teases me. He goes, you know what, Fastinelli, bouncing's not for everybody. I go, yeah, I guess not, Jimmy. <laughs> so uh, I got the spot in like eight months. So it was pretty quick in the grand scheme of things. So it worked out well for me. So yeah. uh, I was very happy. Yeah, so that's the Washington Heights mm -hmm. neighborhood of New York City. Absolutely. What yep. was the transition like from firefighter to lieutenant? And what was it like working in that neighborhood? So, um, of course, big transition. It's a whole shift in your thought process. Now I'm um, the boss now for that tour, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot more responsibility, whereas when you're a firefighter, you're responsible for yourself and your position. Now I have uh, the firefighters uh, that I'm responsible for. Uh, they were great. It's a solid, solid single engine in Upper Manhattan, uh, 170th Autobahn to Amsterdam. Um, senior firefighters up there as well, especially the chauffeurs. They were great. I mean, and the chiefs I worked for were awesome. I had uh, Chief Montero, who covered mm -hmm. as a captain now as a battalion chief in the, in the 13th. Chief uh, Richie, uh, whose son's now on, you know, he's a deputy now on our job. His dad was the battalion commander, super squared away, Marco Vitolo, and uh, Maloney was the other chief. And they, they were great. They were almost, again, like having like your uncles there. They would like help me out and make sure that I was, you know, everything was going well. You know, when, you, when you're a boss in a, in a great company, it's actually, I don't want to say easy, but it's easier because they, everybody does everything and you're yeah. just there to like talk on the radio and make sure that, you know, you know, hearing the orders from the chief and watching, but there's not much really to do. I think it's tougher to be a boss in a house maybe that's not as uh, senior or doesn't have as much, you know, they don't get as many reps in because now you really got to really. So for me, it was, it was 67 was super solid. They were squared away. Mm -hmm. They were very aware that they were a single engine. So they always were like aware of like, hey, listen, we got to leave room for the truck. You know, at a double house, it's probably automatic because you know the truck's right behind you. A single engine is a little different because you're going by yourself. So they were like, they were just a super squared away company. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was great. I spent four years there as lieutenant mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, I got promoted to captain. Yeah. So. What is your approach to studying and, and why is promoting so important to you? Well, you know, the books keep getting <laughs> bigger and bigger. There's a lot there's more to study. Uh, I just tried to set up a schedule and uh, I always looked at studying as a marathon, not a sprint. Okay. So I would pace myself because you mm -hmm. can easily burn out and like say, ah, I'm not doing this. So I would just try to uh, study. And um, there's actually a group of us it was kind of a small world, right? You know, we say the FDNY is a small job. So one of the firefighters uh, from Proby School, who actually sat next to him in my squad, we both went to 37 and 40 together. Actually, the two of us went to the truck together. So studying for lieutenant, we were in a study group with another firefighter who's now the captain of 40 truck. We had a study group with a few other people, and we were pretty serious students. We would study. So i do my work on my own. We would work together as a study group. Um, we got promoted to lieutenant. Then it's come time for captain. Same study group again. We're studying, so we're trying to regiment it. And, and you're each responsible for, like, a section to make up questions and stuff. So it's kind of the whole idea of, like, uh, the fear of failure or the fear of, like, in a teamwork with the in the actual mm -hmm. company itself. You know, we're a positional fire department. Like, you have right. to get the roof. You have to get this. Well, now we're in a study group. It's the same thing. Like, I'm responsible for these chapters. i got to make questions. 
if I don't do it, I'm not just hurting myself, I'm hurting, hurting our group. So it, there's yeah. that level of like commitment and uh, responsibility, which kind of drives you because you're not responsible just for yourself. So that kind of helped me out a lot too. And uh, it also helps out that the guys I was working with are super sharp. So they were like pointing out stuff. I'm like, man, if I didn't, if I didn't have them to point that out, I would have never picked that up on my own. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and one of them's a captain now and one of them's a battalion chief who happens to be my... 23 years later, my mutual partner again. It's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, I appreciate that insight because I want to talk about um, your promotion to captain. So all these promotions are kind of happening quickly in the grand scheme. Yes, yeah. So I, I was spent four years as a lieutenant, 2006. Yeah. Got promoted to captain. Uh, that was August of 06. Promoted to captain April of 2011. And again, timing is everything. The, the day that I got promoted to captain, uh, the captain of 23 engine got promoted to chief. I was friendly with one of the deputies uh, in the third division at the time, Jimmy Hodgins. I know him actually from my di in Brooklyn. Uh, mm -hmm. I lived in, on 54th Street in, in Sunset Park. He was like three doors down from me. So he knew me when I was a kid, mm -hmm. like really young. And um, so we crossed paths a few times, and he remembered me from 54th Street. He goes, oh, Jeff, he's like, uh, you're coming down to the third division again? I said, yeah, I'd like to. He's all right. He's like, uh, and he was working in a division as a deputy. And he's like, you know what, 23 engines open it up. I think you'll be a great mm -hmm. fit there. Try it out. Let me know. So I went there right out of promotion. I didn't, I didn't, you know, going back to Jimmy Brosey, uh, I didn't bounce at all. I go, timing is everything. So I go right to 23 Engine, and he was right. The guys were great. I yeah. loved it there. And um, it, was, it was a great experience. So I had to wait a little bit. So I was, I was there uh, for the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, the spot opened up. I, I put in for, The spot was open because the guy got promoted. I put in for it. I got the spot, mm -hmm. got the endorsements and everything. Even though I was a young guy, mm -hmm. uh, I had the battalion and the division's endorsements. And uh, I kind of knew the area because uh, my parallel life, I'm also a stagehand on Broadway. So that's right in the theaters. So I kind of knew a lot was going on down there. But I didn't have any, other than projects, didn't have much firefighting experience mm -hmm. in high-rise or, or, or any experience, really other than project fires. So it was a huge learning curve down there, plus the complexity of all those right. buildings and everything. So it was a great learning curve. I got involved in a bunch of stuff. They, they invited me to be on the third division safety committee, which they usually take a person from each rank. So I was the captain's person there for a while, which was a great learning opportunity. And then uh, I was also on the mega high rise committee where they were mm -hmm. talking about buildings 800 mm -hmm. feet or more. I was in on that as a captain. So I got to learn a lot while I was down there. But um, talking about like how I started out in a tiller, now I'm captain of a single engine again, which from a boss perspective is nice because you only have <laughs> half the amount of guys to, you know, uh, it worked out well. But um, they rotate in Manhattan because of the volume of calls mm -hmm. for the class E's and the J along. So the hotels and the office buildings, you would rotate. Uh, we would rotate with 54 engine and four truck monthly so that like you wouldn't get crushed with all these class E's and J's, which is a single unit response to investigate. So every like third month, it would be our turn to go. Again, thinking about that slowed down approach, right? So I'm a single unit. I'm responding to a an automatic alarm at an office building. It's a big building, right? I can't just look up and see smoke. I, I'm not sure. Maybe something's going on that we're not aware of. So that would slow down my approach. I would look. I'd ask the building security guy, let me look at the cameras on those floors, see if I see any smoke in the cameras, any smoke in the elevators. And then I would go to the alarm panel, and I would look. And I'd always slow down and look at, like, the alarm panel has, like, the LCD display mm -hmm. or the paper printout. And I'd want to look uh, where it says fire. It has a number next to it. Usually it's one, meaning that one device came in, whether it be one smoke detector or one pull station or one heat detector. And I always look to see if there was more than one number because mm -hmm. that would mean to me that there's more than one device coming in. And I'd put the brakes on, you know, and say, oh, what's going on here? Probably there's a smoke condition. or Most times it was, like, a burnt-up belt from a duct detector or something like that. But I would transmit the box, get the help coming, and uh, I'd always scroll through the history and see, like, listen, you know, is it 17th floor? Well, let me see. Maybe the 15th floor, 16th floor came in, the floors below it. This way I wouldn't inadvertently bring my firefighters up above the fire. Yeah. I want to make sure. So, like I said, when I first started out slowing down with a tiller, like, 
looking at the bigger picture, kind of built upon itself. Now when I'm captain, now I'm dealing with much bigger buildings. Mm-hmm. I got to put the brakes on again. You can't just take the any staircase. You got to make sure you're making you know mm-hmm. smart decisions about tactically where you're setting up, making sure you're not inadvertently going above the fire. You know, reading the SIDS and knowing is there access stairs. All these kind of things that I didn't have to worry about up in Harlem because these buildings are much yeah. bigger and more complex. I think it helped me to slow down in the captain's rank to take things in. So now that I'm a battalion chief, now I'm really have mm-hmm. the luxury of slowing down. I have to own the SIDS, digest the SIDS, because you know people are getting dressed, getting ready to operate. I'm sitting in the car with guys driving me. I can, I have yeah. no excuse not to own the SIDS. Honestly, there's nothing in the in the, in the chief's car is putting the fire out, right? So I don't want to be the first one there. I want the rigs to get there, set up. I come in behind and like get the lay, the big picture and stuff. So that's been my whole career trending, like yeah. you know. Just kind of slow things down, right? You want to kind of control the tempo as much as you can of everything. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Well, thank you for breaking down the challenges that you encountered and how you approached them so yes. far in your career. And let's pivot now to battalion chief. Yes. So you were promoted to A, battalion chief at the 15-year mark of your uh, career. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I had 15 years in February, and I was promoted to chief in April of 2016. So actually coming up on eight years now. That's yeah. excellent. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, and you're assigned to the 18th Battalion. Um, so not initially, no, I was assigned to the uh, 7th Division, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't get the spot until December of 2017, uh, assigned to the 18th. Got it. So um, I was assigned, uh, actually, I was assigned to the, to the, I should take that back. I was assigned administratively to the 13th Battalion, but that's just like, that doesn't mean anything. It's just where like your evaluations go. We have a mailbox basically like for the quartermaster and stuff. It's just an administrative assignment. It's not, doesn't mean mm-hmm. you're a chief in the 13th. But I um, I was signed on paper there for administrative reasons. I, I was there. I bounced for that summer. Now, when I was captain, Chief uh, McCavanaugh was mm-hmm. the division commander in the 3rd Division. He had since gotten promoted to staff chief, mm-hmm. and he was working down at fire prevention. So uh, I got promoted in April of 16. I did the uh, command course, which I think, believe was eight weeks back then. I got out in time for the summer. I bounced around for the summer, and then I got a phone call just before Labor Day, August, and uh, it was Chief McCavanaugh. And he's like, Jeff, he's like, you know, you did a great job for me as captain when you were in, in 23 Engine. He's like, uh, how would you like to come down and, and, and work for me in fire prevention? <laughs> and, um, you know. Uh, initially, I was like, ah, uh, you know, I live in Rockland County, got to go to Brooklyn. There's mm-hmm. this kind of, but it, you know what? In hindsight, it worked. I said yes, obviously. And um, it was kind of a great experience for me. I ended up spending 10 months mm-hmm. uh, working in Metro Tech. And um, it's different. You know, I've been in the field the whole right. time. Now I'm offline. And I kind of like joke a little bit because some, I don't, I talked to some people that say, you know, the, the toughest hallway they ever had to make in the fire <laughs> service was like Metro Tech, right? So I'm like, ah, I kind of can see where that's coming from. But, um, it was an overall good experience. I made uh, connections that are still pay dividends today with people in fire prevention, mm-hmm. um, both civilian employees and uh, the uniform people that are down there. Yeah, it's great. It was, it, you know, we made uh, I made a lot of relationships. I learned a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing how we interact with other city agencies, right. like Department of Buildings and stuff like that. Uh, I had to go to City Hall for meetings every once in a while and just to see how all the like the behind the scenes stuff mm-hmm. work, which you don't normally see working in a firehouse. Mm-hmm. So it was a good experience, and I got to make connections, and um, and it was good. It was, it was, and it's still good to today. Yeah. So um, I could imagine it lends itself as an incident commander to understand interagency relationships. Hundred percent at that a- level too. A- and also, you see familiar faces sometimes. Right. You just meet these people, and now you see them out in the field, and, it, and it's it absolute hundred percent. It's mm-hmm. all about the people, right? It's all mm-hmm. about. Exactly. relationships and everything and um, I didn't realize that at first but I'm glad that I went through that experience uh, <laughs> I didn't know it at the time <laughs> well you know I mean it's like I'm like yeah. oh, I want to be in the firehouse but yeah. I, but it worked out it worked yeah. out yeah it was good 
Yeah. It was good. Speaking of people and relationships, companies in the 18th Battalion's mm-hmm. response area has a considerable number of very senior officers. Absolutely. Lieutenant Mike Scotto. Yes. Lieutenant Jack Mara. Both yeah. were former guests on this podcast. Yes. Captain Joe Principio. The Prince. Yep. Captain Joe Murphy, Captain yeah. Joe Huber, Lieutenant Kevin White. Uh, what was it like serving as a chief officer with company officers who were on the job before you were in grammar school? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, intimidating, but they never made me feel that way. They yeah. are like the ultimate professionals. Every one of them you named, the Richie Kirshner's another one, okay. Captain of 88 Engine. He was actually in probing school with the Prince, which was 1978, I believe. And not just company officers, Jack Mara, Chavon. Uh, Jack Chavon. Jack is still working. Jack is my aide, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. He's actually going to be retiring this coming May. Okay. Mm-hmm. He came on November of 81. So, um, you know, the, the prince likes to joke. He has a ton of jokes, but he would always <laughs> say, half these guys were cutting Bronx, Bronx science, meaning they were in high school, when I was cutting Bronx roofs. Well, I, I was like kicking slats in the cradle when he was yeah. cutting Bronx roofs, but I was a baby. <laughs> so... Um, it, from my perspective, it was intimidating in the fact that uh, they're so much older than me and they're so much more experienced, but they never once made me feel like inferior, you know, like inferior to them. They were super respectful. And I think the biggest thing I took from them is, is the trust. Like there wasn't a doubt in my mind. Like I never had to ask another question. I never, they never called, they never gave me a report where like, oh man, I'm not sure what they're talking about. Like they, they were so precise and, and, and I took to the bank everything they told me that if like, if they said, hey, it's X, Y, Z, okay, it's X, Y, like I, it was, it was a pleasure working there because these guys had so much experience. It made my job really easy. Like basically I was just the guy with the radio in the street saying, okay, yeah. And they, and they tell you in command class, like don't be the chief that says 10-4. But I'm like, when you have Joe Principio telling you that this is good, like I, I there's no follow up to that. It's like okay, ten four. Like I, like even though I know I'm not supposed to do that, I have nothing else to say. Like the guy covered all the bases. Mm-hmm. Like, the same way when I was a lieutenant in sixty seven engine, I worked in the same groups as Mike Champo. Right. <laughs> he gave such a detailed report, kind of like Brian Curry does in Thirty Three Truck. Now mm-hmm. they paint such a picture for you, like it's like okay, like I, there's nothing left to ask. Like they gave you everything. Like. That's it. Like sort of some type of catastrophic thing happening like out of their control that we don't know about. We're done. That's yeah. it. So um, it was a great experience for me. And plus you hear back in the, you know, the firehouse banter, all the all the stories and all this, all the history. Mm-hmm. Just to soak all that up is, uh, and you know, not just in my house, but I would go to 88 and 38 or 48 and 56 to visit my other companies. And you have Richie Kirshner, Kevin White, all these guys just given history of stuff and like uh, going around and talking about buildings. I had the similar experience as Captain in 23 Engine. We had Tom Mara, uh, Jack's brother actually, who oh. was the 9th Battalion mm-hmm. commander. And he worked in that area forever. And he would just, you go to a box for class three. Hey Jeff, you know about this building? Now watch that chief. Oh, we had this fire here in 1980. I'm like, oh. so they would give you like a history <laughs> lesson on every run. It's like, I feel like I'm watching the history channel. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I, I, I love that stuff. Yeah. Um, so going back to the second part of your question, you asked me about Jack Chavon. Yeah. Jack uh, did 11 years in the 88 engine and came for personal reasons, uh, stuff going on at home, came to the, to the battalion in 1992. It was supposedly for like a short stint, and he's been there since. So what's nice about uh, having an aide like that or any aide that's been there for a while, and especially once you get a spot for a while, 
Um, they get to know you, your personality, and most importantly, they know your blind spots. Mm -hmm. So like however I'm operating, I try to be as sharp as I can be and on top of my game, but listen, we're human. And uh, every once in a while, Jack will be like, hey, hey uh, Chief, or hey, Jeff, did you get, oh, yeah, Jack, thanks. Because, you know, the next fire I go to where I do everything right will be my first fire. There's always something you're kind of like, ah, I forgot to do this, or I wanted to do that, or it's just, that's just human nature, right? And, um, you know, we get better at it, but it's always, there's always something. So I love having that extra layer of redundancy with the aide. He's, yeah. and all the aides are great, but he's just been doing it so long. He's like having a second chief. He thinks like a chief. He's worked... In 30-something years, he's worked with – how many chiefs has he worked with? He knows every – because he lives in the Bronx. He knows every street in the Bronx, every location, building history, building – you know, he, he just – uh, and unfortunately, he's well, not unfortunately. It's great for him, but for us, he's going to be retiring in May because uh, he'll be sixty-five in September. So uh, he, he's got his date figured out. But um, he's awesome. It's 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 great to have that. And mm -hmm. and I know we're unique in that. Like most battalion aides aren't that way. I mean, there are a few of them around that have a lot of time, but like that's few and far between. So I know mm -hmm. it's a special thing that we have. So I try to. You know, I just enjoy going to work every day anyway, but that just makes it extra special. So. Yeah, I'm happy we gave a little bit of time to highlight him. Yeah, absolutely. And it, back to what I said earlier, that we're always in each other's periphery. I mean, I'm glowing as you're mentioning all these names because I've worked with these individuals yes. on different projects. And to your point, they're the subject matter experts. So I had unlimited trust in them. And I understand what you're saying, absolutely. even though I haven't experienced it in the stressful, chaotic environment that you obviously yeah. operate in. And, and if I could say one more thing about the trust is that not only, you know, I, I'm the chief in the street. I, I'm not, you know, I'm coordinating things. I'm outside talking to them. But there's also that mutual trust where they trust me mm -hmm. uh, to watch out for the bigger picture. Like they're inside operating. They're doing their thing inside. You have to have trust in the chief out in the street to say, hey, listen, when it's time to pull the plug, he's going to pull the plug. Or if something's going on, you know, we're deviating from the plan, he's going to let us know we're deviating. Mm -hmm. So that it's it's a mutual trust, right? Like yes. I trust them implicitly because they have so much time and experience and I take mm -hmm. their word as gospel. But I appreciate the fact that, hey, listen, they, they have 40 years, but they're putting, you know, uh, they're, they're trusting me that, hey, this guy, you know, he's got a lot less time than us, but hopefully he's not, you know, uh, out to lunch. He's like got our back. And, and so that's like a, an honor just for me to be able to be the chief to – to, to watch these guys do their thing. Yeah, so. that's an important point uh, to uh, highlight, too. Uh, absolutely. Love it. Absolutely. So let's talk now about complex fires and emergencies. You've been a battalion chief for nearly eight years. Yes. And are no stranger to serious and complex fires in heavily occupied buildings. Yes. So I'm excited to talk. I don't know if excited is the right word, but I'm interested <laughs> yeah, yeah. to absolutely. talk to you about this. Right. Let's start with the Prospect Avenue fire. Sure. On the evening of December 28th, 2017, you commanded a fire operation on Prospect Avenue. The fire was in a five-story, non-fireproof, multiple dwelling and claimed the lives of 13 people. It was the city's deadliest fire in 25 years. So in what ways did you experience both the burden and privilege of command based on that experience? Okay, so um, I, I was assigned to the 18th Battalion like two weeks before. I think like December 14th, the order came out. So uh, I'm, I'm fairly new. I'm, I'm new to the battalion. I know a lot of the players because I was a lieutenant again in the 7th Division, so bouncing around. So I knew a lot of people. I knew all those senior bosses. They had asked me, hey, if you can come back, come back. So it worked out, and it worked out well for me. But I'm still a new chief. I, I had had a, fires as a 3rd Division as an ABC. Uh, I had had some fires bouncing around as a chief before I went off to work in, in, uh, in, um, with Chief Spadafora and Chief McAvenor. But, I, you know, I, I was definitely not comfortable in the rank. You know, it takes a while, even maybe up to five years before you start feeling that, that comfort 
fact, they were in a spot to get that, you know, get into your groove, basically. I didn't have any of that. So um, I had a great aide, and uh, we're going to the box. The Bronx is calling me. Ironically enough, we drive right by Happy Lands, which I have to come out of quarters on East Tremont, make the right on Southern, and 1959 Southern's right there staring at me. Uh, that's, so we're driving past Happy Lands, which is the fire they're talking about from 25 years prior. I understand. Where 87 people passed. Uh, drive right past that, up to 185th Street. Uh, to get the prospect was between 185 and 187. Pull down the block, and we have smoke. Now, most fires you go to, there's a cadence to them or a tempo, right? So I get out. Companies are moving up. Uh, my second two trucks are relocated because the second two truck was out of service. Uh, 88 and 38 are pulling up. We have smoke in the block. So they call me. Okay, t- uh, Actually, uh, 70, 88 engine gave the 1075. Uh, the first two chauffeur, super squared away guy. He actually recently retired. He's a friend of mine back home. Um, Sharp. He calls me right away. Chief, we have a bad hydrant in front, so we give it 1070, which lets them know we don't have a positive water source. 88 engine being super squared away, old school. They drop two lines in front of the building. He now solves a problem where he, he's going to solve his own problem where he drives to the corner of 187 and Arthur, picks up a hydrant on Arthur Avenue, which is a different main, has a good hydrant, calls me and says, hey, I have water. With that, the first two truck, uh, led by one of the senior lieutenants, gets to the front of the building. Gets into the vestibule, can't open the second door to get into the hallway because there's three bodies there. Uh, so right right from the get-go, we have an issue, right? So he calls me, he says, oh, we have three 1045s. So I have a bad hydrant, I have three 1045s. It's also like three days after Christmas, quarter to seven at night, freezing out. It's like single digits, cold out. And I don't see a lick of fire. I, all I see is smoke everywhere. So I know we have a job, but I don't see any flame. As a matter of fact, they went to a fifth alarm. I never saw a fire, right? So the, the reports I'm hearing on the radio aren't actually matching what I'm seeing. Like, it's kind of a weird situation to be in because it sounds bad, which it was bad, but I don't. I only see smoke because most of the fire was in the shafts, in the rear, and auto explosive in the back. So anyhow, 88 engine calls me and says, hey, chief, we got. I have good water now. So great. With that, they bring the three people that are out to the sidewalk, and I'm by myself, right? My aide is giving reports. I tell him to transmit a second alarm. So he goes to the one rig that's close by, is asking for more help, tells him we have three 1045s, has uh, additional alarm transmitted. With that, when they give it 1070, they usually tell the second arriving engine, you're the water resource. So all this, again, the time sequence is a little off because when you're under stress, the time is not exactly, it's all kind of compressed, and it's been a few years. But 46 engines, my, my second arriving engine, and they report into me. And uh, I remember distinctly seeing these red flashes coming. And I didn't know what it was at first, but I realized afterwards, after my aide, who was super heads up, transmits the second alarm and tells him we have 31045s, he's going to all the rigs that are close by. And the red that I see is he's throwing uh, EMS bags, like the tech bag and like the oxygen bags, in my direction because the three people are laying like right near me. And 46 engine comes at the same time. And like, Chief, will you water resource? What do you need? I was like, I have water. I need CFRD. So they went right to work on those three people, and one out of those three ended up surviving. But that was their job. They never fought the fire, those guys. The 46 engine was operating in a CFRD capacity the whole time. And I just remember my aide, like, you know, like, you know how things kind of play in slow motion sometimes when you're in the stress? I just remember seeing these things. I'm like, what? What is it? And then I realized he was just getting resources of EMS stuff. Uh, to the, He knew we were going to need them, and which we did. And uh, they operated. And then it was all from there. To my benefit, though, who was responding in in the 7th Division was Jay Jonas. Say the, no more. Right. <laughs> I mean, the epitome of a deputy chief. Like, if you, if I had the luxury scenario of saying, all right, listen, Jeff, you're going to have a fire where there's going to be a lot of people in trouble, uh, and you, you you get to pick who you want coming in, he's on my short list, right? A Mike McPartland, yeah. uh, a Jay Jonas, a Tom McCavanaugh, somebody that's like a super, super squared away, super experienced 
deputy that's going to be like, yeah, that's the guy I want, like, over my shoulder saying, we got to do X, Y, and Z. Here's the plan. Here's what we're doing. And that, you know, the fire gods are watching out for me because they gave me Jay Jonas. And I'm like, thank God. So when he came in, you know, there's an exchange of information, right? But there was so much happening that it was kind of like, you know, and he's listening, coming in and everything. But he gets there and he's like, I remember him telling me like very reassuringly, all right, Jeff, you're doing good. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And he pretty much laid the groundwork for how we were going to sector everything and do everything. But we were both losing track of the 1045s. They were coming in in groups. And then uh, it was tough to keep track. So he says, we're going to special call another chief above the next alarm, which we, you know I gave the second, he gave the third, fourth, and fifth. Uh, he goes, we're going to special call a, a battalion chief to be the victim tracking chief. So I'm like, okay, chief, whatever. You, like, I, I, you know, I'm trying to still figure out everything. And, uh, you know, he let me run it, but he was looking at the bigger picture stuff. So I still ran the tactics of everything. And, he, and to his credit, even though I was a newer chief, he let me do, you know, what I had to do. And um, I remember one specific instance where uh, 75 Engine came, and who's my mutual partner now, who we were probing together, it was him, you know, Captain Coppola, Chris Coppola, now Chief Coppola. He comes in, and I bet he saw my face kind of like, like I had so much going on. And, and, you know, when you're in the middle of doing something crazy like that, when you see a familiar face, it's like a reassuring thing. And I'm like, oh, great, Chris, do me a favor. I need a line here. All right, no problem, Jeff, I got it. Like, it was just like, thank God. Like, I, you know, it just was... Kind of like clockwork. And um, again, not that I did anything spectacular there, but the companies were just awesome. And they, they you know, got a lot of people down. Uh, unfortunately, we lost 12 at the fire, and the 13th person died the next day. But not for a lack of effort. They were just phenomenal. I mean, you ask them to do something, they would, you ask a firefighter to do this for you, they'll run through They'll run through yeah. a brick wall for you. It's, it's unbelievable to watch. And, um, and I just had a ton of help from the whole command staff. We had, like, you know, resource unit leader, the, the, the sector chief. So everybody was just... Uh, that victim tracking chief uh, from the 1-5, Tommy Graber. Everybody did a phenomenal job, and uh, there's no way you can do it. You know, the, like when something's so complex like that, the answer really is some, is, is is to become more simplistic and, and to and to get things off your plate and structure it where um, you can't handle all that stuff. Like you know, and Jonas was keenly aware of that. He's like, Def, we we can't handle all these 1045s like this. We need to get another chief here to manage that for us, and we need to do this, and we need to do that, and we ended up putting a chief on every floor, and like. So he showed me the way to really like to structure it and 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 to realize you know how we run this thing. But I didn't know what happened to me. Uh, I was like kind of like uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know what to what to make heads or tails of this whole thing. It took mm-hmm. a while for me to unpack it. So I went home that weekend, and uh, you know I'm married with four kids and everything. And uh, let's just say we had a conversation, my wife and I, and it didn't go that well. It was a benign thing, and uh, she ends up crying. The kids end up crying. She leaves. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, I didn't understand what the heck was wrong with me. Because uh, it never happened before. But in my mind, I'm like, how do 13 people die on my watch? Like, I'm a, like I, this is not how this is supposed to go. So what's the answer, right? What do I have to do? I, I know I have to get back to the firehouse. So sure enough, my next 24 is uh, New Year's Day night. And, and the, so it's the first night and the second day of 2018. Mm-hmm. Who's driving me? Jack Chavon, right? So <laughs> all right. So he knows now that I just went through this whole thing. And he's like, you know, how you doing? And... You know, Jack's a lot older than me, and he's kind of like being like almost like a you know, older brother type role. Like, ah, you did good. You know, everybody's good. You know, we, you know, things happen out of our control sometimes. Like, yeah, you're right, Jack. So, uh, sure enough, by quarter to five in the morning, we get a phone alarm, commercial phone alarm for a fire, and uh, Jack being familiar with the buildings. Uh, and again, the other point is that you no, know, we're most of us, most of the companies that responded to Prospect, are a lot of the same companies that are responding to this next job I'm going right. to have my next 24 in. And a lot of us are coming off our twenty or seventy-two hour off, so it's a lot of the same firefighters. Not only the same companies, but a lot of the same bosses. A lot of the same firefighters coming. So Jack says to me, "Hey, chief, you know uh, that's that building that's kind of it's, it's changed the occupancies a lot. It's not not the best of buildings." Uh, I said, "All right, Jack, thanks." So uh, sure enough, we go ninety engine, forty one truck, a first do. 
We get there first too, and it's a furniture store, which is closed. Now it's quarter to five in the morning. And from the two side of the building to the four side, as far as you can see, it's orange behind all the roll downs. And I'm like, oh my God. And like knowing what I know now about human performance, I know I was definitely right side of the curve, right? Mm-hmm. Because as much as we like to think in our minds that everything is siloed, what happens at home stays at home, what happens at work stays at work, no way, man. Everything bleeds over. So I'm starting coming off my next 24 of losing 13 people and going through that event. I'm starting right at center for sure. So I, I wasn't wearing any biometric devices at the time. Now I do. I wish I had my data back then. I, I, I don't. But I can surmise that I was definitely right at center, just starting off, right? So here we go, fires off to the races. We, it's a four, it's four floors above the, the it's a five story building. There's four floors of occupied apartments above the furniture store. It's like zero degrees out. It's freezing yeah. out, uh, even colder than the night we had Prospect. And we have people trapped. Forty one truck does an amazing job of getting the bucket between the high tension lines and the building. Gets mm-hmm. a family out from the top floor. Every company, as a matter of fact, Joe Principio, who was working at 58 Truck, he said very few fires as he leaves somebody at the door of the apartment to do a search. That's just the way he operates. There's only like two fires he's done it, one of them being this fire, where he said it was like real bad. Uh, Billy Bonacera, the 2 he was my all-hands chief. Aces, like everybody that was there was like, they were tremendous. We had some minor injuries, not one fatality. So it was just a testament to how everybody operated there. You know, you think quarter to five in the morning, everybody's pretty much sleeping. If you would have asked me as a betting person, where are you going to have 13 fatalities? I would have put my money on the furniture store at 5 o'clock in the morning that's ripping with people above, not the quarter to 7 at night, like, you know, right off Arthur Avenue with the people walking everywhere. So uh, anyhow, um, because of that seventh alarm, which this was the seventh alarm now that I had, (laughs) Chief uh, Chief Leonard and and Commissioner Nigro uh, responded to both fires. And uh, not so much Chief Leonard, but... Commissioner Nigel just kind of looks at me like, like almost with like this, like this you again type look. And I'm like, oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> it's me again. So he just kind of like uh, smirked a little bit and walked away. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. So, uh, so anyhow, because of that fire, like, I guess because of the legal nature of prospect, um, legal said we can't do any kind of formal after action review. Okay, no problem. But for Commonwealth, which is a seventh alarm, we did have one. So that fire was January. I believe around February, we all met at the Bronx Borough and uh, had the after-action review for the 7th Long Commonwealth. And that's where I met Jason Bresler. Okay. He was actually present. Mm-hmm. And after the action, after-action review was over, he pulled me aside and said, hey, Chief, I'm Jay Bresler. I said, oh, Jay, nice to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. You know, again, because he was a firefighter initially in 58 trucks, so I knew you know, his military background. I kind of knew of him. I just had never met him. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, you know, uh, I, I would like to offer you an opportunity uh, this coming spring. Now, we're in February. Like, either March or April, we're doing a... Uh, a week away in Rockland County, it's called the MPI program, Mental Performance Initiative. And I hadn't really heard much about it. And he goes, would you be interested in coming? And I said, yeah, absolutely. He goes, you're off the chart for a week. And uh, we bring in people from sports, professional sports, and the military and academia. And we go over like human performance under stress. I go, yeah, no problem. So I really didn't fully really appreciate what he was offering me until I went there for that week. And... When the people speak for the week, and I'm hearing stuff they're talking about of being like operating under pressure, and what happens to you as a human, auditory exclusion, the tunnel vision, the time compression, mm-hmm. uh, memory gaps, mm-hmm. um, it's so like the, the the negative consequences of what happens to your body under stress, like the anger almost. Like there is like a mental health backdrop to this whole thing. Now I understand what I was feeling that weekend between prospect right. and the seventh alarm of like you know having a little argument with my wife and 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 like what is wrong with me like and, and and I was questioning myself like what the heck like I experienced everything they're talking about I experienced not knowing it at prospect 
And I, t- I come to find out it's totally normal. And I, I felt so much better after going, thinking to myself, all right, that's normal. That's like a normal reaction to stress. So from, from there forward, um, and, and Chief Ginty at the time, yeah. who was getting ready to get promoted to deputy, I believe. And, you know, he knew he had a couple years left and he was going to make his move to retire. Uh, he had approached me. And I knew him from my 40 truck days because we used to run mm-hmm. him with the 12th Battalion. And he said, listen, Jeff, um, you know, you, you're going to be around the job for a while. You know, um, you're a battalion chief now. Would, would you ever consider maybe um, following me for a little bit and then taking over as the project manager for MPI? And uh, I said, yeah. And he had Brian Shovlin also, who mm-hmm. was now a deputy at the time. He was a battalion chief for the 12th Battalion. So we kind of co-run it. And, like, Brian does the behind-the-scenes stuff, like with the grants and, mm-hmm. and dealing with uh, the vendors and stuff. And I, I do more of the uh, hands-on part with, like, with the, with the teaching and we're like running the program and you know, the, mm-hmm. the tactical one day program, which mm-hmm. Captain Longo and uh, Will Hickey run, uh, Lieutenant Hickey, and um, and then the day to day stuff with the uh, the week long program. I, I handle all that. So it, it's a great team effort. And um, I just been further along and I've been uh, honored to help out and I've benefited from it tremendously. It's been uh, not only like in my professional life, but in my personal life. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's just it's human stuff. So it's. It's great being a dad. It's great being a husband. It's great being a, a chief or a member of the department. It just helps you in so many different facets because it's it's all about human stuff. When you first attended the MPI program, did you have any idea what the future had in store for you? Zero. Right. None. None. No, no, I, no, I just thought it was going to be a week away, almost like just uh, – <laughs> I didn't know what it was going to be. Honestly, I didn't know. I, I, mm. I, I wasn't really sure what to uh, – it was not nothing that I imagined. Knowing now uh, – Right. Seeing where you are now no way. and how involved you are. No way. My crystal ball was not that uh, – Yeah. No, no way. No way. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm super happy where it, it's taken me. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. Yeah, and your contribution as a program manager is invaluable. Taking that on. Yeah, I just try to organize what I can and kind of, you know, we have a lot of help from people back at headquarters, like Jeff Garofalo. I can't yeah, speak highly enough yeah, about him. That great. guy is a, a <laughs> consummate gentleman. He's always behind us and he helps us out. And, uh, you know, the, for he those has his who whole don't staff. know, he basically runs all the grants for the department. Unbelievable. You know, Barry Greenspan, yes. all, all yeah. these people that, that nobody knows. They're like, unsung heroes. Absolutely. They absolutely are. They They're are. civilians behind the scenes, yes. but they are absolutely yes. supporting absolutely. the front line. Absolutely. And uh, there's a, uh, uh, Marissa, I can't think of her last uh, Gomez, I believe. I believe. She She's right. signed. She worked. There's a whole team of them that, yeah. like, you know, if I if I was in Metro, I mean, Garofalo, I know in person, uh, I, I would recognize him. But like, if I'm metro, at Metro Tech one day, if like for a company medical, I could walk right past them. And I right. have no idea who they are because it's basically email and phone calls. <laughs> I have no idea what they look like, but I, I would hug them if I saw them because they do so much work for us behind the scenes. Uh, they do a great job, and they, and we can't do it without them, honestly. So. And I want to mention that Chief uh, Jim Ginty has been featured on this podcast as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, solid. His name. S- super solid. <laughs> Firefighter. His dad was one of the founding members of the, uh, the the band. Yes. And his brother's still currently on the job. He's a uh, uh, battalion chief also. Absolutely a whole firefighting family, but excellent. excellent what a family. breath of experience you have had. In a short time, job. right? Yeah, yeah, 23 filled years of a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, meeting a lot of personalities, meeting, and 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 the job has been great to me. Right. I mean, I've had a lot of opportunities. I mean, I, you know, the fire department has given me so much. I really, I could never repay for everything they've given me. So that's why I'm always happy to say, yeah, all right, I'll help out for whatever I could do, because mm-hmm. uh, there's been so many things. I mean, uh, I've been through Foamy. I've been, obviously opportunity to, to to help out and manage the MPI program, which is, you know, the, the highlight, obviously, and. Um, 
working in all great companies, have been able, able to get assigned to, to primo spots. It's, a, it's really a, a blessing, I, I think. It's awesome. Yeah, and so. I, I just love the way that you frame the, the privilege that you have it in is. this role. But it is a role that comes with responsibility and, and a lot of burden. Yeah. And um, at this point, I wanted to talk about the Twin Parks fire, that's okay. Sure, yeah, so that was, um, I, like I said, I got promoted in, in April of 16. I got promoted to battalion chief. And, you know, the way civil service works, you only need, like, one day in rank to take the next test. So it was about a year and a half. Uh, sometime in 2017 was the deputies test. So I had very little seniority. Uh, honestly, wasn't even thinking about being a deputy. But I said, you know what? Just to get the experience of taking a test, let me take it without putting much time into studying because I, I just want to know what to expect. So I took it. And uh, I'm good friends with Chris Eiser, another squared away yeah. Super squared away guy. I mean, another like FDNY royalty name, right? You hear Kaiser. That's like, there's certain names that are like FDNY royalty, right? So um, Chris and I take the, we got promoted to chief together. We, okay. were, we were good buddies in, in, in the command course. And uh, so we both take the test and we both passed by like one point and he and I are together on the end of the list. So I'm like, wow, we made it. We had no seniority, but we made the end of the list. Not nearly promotable. We're like at the end end. But because there's a hierarchy as to who, who like ADCs, acting deputy chief, uh, because I am on the list, uh, I ADC'd more than even that uh, um, a head of chief that are senior to me in rank in, in the 7th Division that are bouncing around, not bouncing, that have spots in the, in the battalions in the in the uh, 7th Division. But because I'm on the list, I ADC ahead of them because they mm -hmm. take from the list usually, you know, in your groups, there's a hierarchy of who they take. So because of that, I'm ADCing a lot, which was fine. It was a good experience. I didn't mind it. But fast forward to January 9th, 2022. It's a Sunday. And... Um, the way my career goes, for some reason, I catch some of my best work on Sunday days. You think it's a nice quiet day in the fire, you can have a nice meal, and boom, it's like out like a million windows. But anyhow, so here we are. It's uh, Sunday morning, and the firehouse where the 7th Division is is one of the one of the uh, houses in my battalion. So I enjoy going to ADC for the experience, but also I get to hang out and spend more time other than a quick visit, a cup of coffee, like quick drill uh, with Engine 48 and Ladder 56. That's an engine and a battalion in my, in my battalion. So I'm there with them, so it's great. So I get to you know build relationships more so than I normally would because um, they're a little further away, so I don't see them on on boxes all the time. So mm -hmm. I like going there just to you know get the pulse of what's going on and just you know the whole like back and forth. So I'm there, and uh, I had ADC'd a bunch of times before. Uh, just real quick, just to give you a little backdrop, the first time, I, the first like five or six times I ADC'd. I didn't have any runs, Nothing, mm. no fires, didn't run. So I went there, just kind of kept the seat warm for a few hours, talked, had a nice meal, and uh, bonded with my firefighters and went back. The first run I have is an ADC. Uh, actually, Frank Lieb was a brand new citywide tour commander. I believe it was his first uh, fatal as a citywide tour commander. I'm ADCing. 13th Battalion, it's those large apartment buildings over the transverse, which like between the George Washington Bridge and the Cross mm -hmm. Bronx, those real big buildings like Wadsworth and all those avenues there, uh, St. Nick. Uh, mother and daughter died, and the 13th Battalion had the fire. I'm the ADC coming in. So my first run as an ADC is a double fatal. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I got to do the whole fatal fire package, all this stuff. Not like a, I'm, I'm hoping for like a one-room job that like when I get there, it's out. Like it's like a bunt, right? Like a, the guys have it. No, I get the double fatal out of the gate. All right, so I get that all out of the way. The next time I ADC, I get the one-room job. I should have had it for the first one. I get there to the 2-0. It's like, oh, we're done. We're out of here. I'm like, all right, great. I go back. Fast forward a few more times. I have a few, few small fires, nothing really of consequence until January 9th. So I'm working. The firehouse is on Webster Avenue, 187, very close to where uh, Twin Parks is. 
So we're listening on the radio. We hear uh, comes in as like an unconscious, I believe. They had, they came in as a fire. They reported an unconscious person. So we're like, kind of like perking up our ears. We always have the scanner on. We're listening. And um, sure enough, I hear uh, Lieutenant Dave Werder in Engine 48 say 1077. So boom, we're in the car. We're out. We're going. We got in very fast. I mean, like very quickly because of location, but also we're listening. Like we're ready to go. Um, I have to look at the actual timestamp, but we're in very quickly behind the 19th mm-hmm. Battalion, who's the first chief uh, on the scene. And... Um, I kind of said earlier when we first started, like, uh, I never want to see anything bad happen to anybody, but uh, if something bad has to happen, I just hope I'm working so I can kind of, you know, be there to help out. And uh, in a strange way, and I've actually, people ask me, like, oh, you went through Prospect, that must have been a terrible experience. And I'm like, nah, you know what, I'm kind of happy I went through it, because uh, I learned a lot, from, especially from Chief Jonas. Like, right. I had so many mental slides that I, that I didn't realize I had right away until I started unpacking the whole fire and realizing what, what I experienced. But I kind of had that in my back pocket walking up to this thing. Now, it's two totally different buildings. Twin Parks is a 19-story building, right. much bigger dimensions, many more people, you know, a larger life hazard as opposed to Prospect, which is only a five-story, you know, smaller building, but a life hazard nonetheless. And um, when I walked up to that command post, you know, um, again, this is another fire where I ended up going to a fifth alarm. I never saw fire. I saw a lot of smoke, but all the fire was mm. in the rear. I never actually saw flames. And again, what I'm hearing on the radio is not matching what I'm seeing. So I had a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels I could draw. So, you know, you have that self-talk. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to myself walking up. I'm like, all right, you got this. I know what I have to do. It's going to be complex, but I got to make it simple. And whose voice did I have in my head? Chief Jonas. I had Jonas's head in my voice. All right, Jeff, you're going to call this. You're going to special call the mm-hmm. chief of victim tracking because they hear they come in fast and furious. There's people everywhere. So I had that. So, uh, you know, the, the first two chief was there and uh, there was a lot going on. So I said, all right, John, I got it. So like now, I, you know, I just ended up kind of running, running stuff and, um, it was off to the races. And uh, again, I was kind of managing everything uh, the best I could. I tried sectoring it. I had mm-hmm. uh, I had a lot of help. I had uh, the victim tracking chief. Guess who it was? You want to guess who it was? The, fifth, the 13th Battalion was coming. My buddy Chris Coppola, the guy yeah. I was probably with, the guy who was 75 engine, who I had a prospect, who was my ace in the hole. Here comes Chris. Hey, Jeff, uh, 13th Battalion, victim tracking. I'm like, Jeff, I was like, Chris, you, I, I'm losing track. I said, you got to help me with the 1045s. So he kind of liaisoned with EMS, and he took that off my plate. Was, we want to have like accurate numbers when we're doing the reports of how many people uh, were reporting as 1045s. But it was at, at one point we had 32 people in uh, cardiac arrest. Right. So like it's 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 a daunting task for anybody to mm-hmm. keep track, and you're not doing it by yourself. So I had a whole command staff. Uh, George Campbell, battalion chief in the two six, he was my resource unit leader phenomenal the guy was phenomenal like he, he, i would just i was in front of the board he had everything set up we were sectoring things where we were putting chiefs companies and everything tremendous tremendous we got to a certain point where uh, george said to me because I, I realized like things were going on and uh he says to me jeff i just transmitted the third i go okay great and uh like normally when you're the resource unit you check you ask the command staff uh, you, what do you need you have this in reserve uh you, you know you want me to special call or anything he realized that and i was trying to f- you know you have people coming up to you there's so much going on uh, I remember at one point the civilian came up right when George was transmitting the third, and like he pounds his fist wow. on the command board. He's like, "My mother's in there," and I'm like, "What?" The? So I'm like, "To the cops, get a fire line set yeah. up!" Like when he hit the thing, all the chips went flying. Oh, I'm like, "Oh my no. god!" Like it was just chaos, yeah. and I'm trying to make it as I'm trying to keep it on the rails, knowing what I know about human performance now. I know I have to keep it together, and at least even if on the inside I don't feel calm, I got to sound calm on the radio because. Uh, the way this thing is going, it's trending. The whole job is trending right of center. I got to try and keep it on the on the, on the rails as best I can. And um, but I had a lot of help doing it. And I know simplicity is the answer to complexity. So I, we have to sector it. We need more help. 
So I told George Campbell, who was behind me, I said, George, I said, transmit a fourth alarm. But we had a decent handle on where the fire was at this point. Uh, Chief Lieb had come in at mm-hmm. this point, and um, uh, you know, he asked me my rundown, what I had and everything. I told him what we had, and he kind of heard it. And he, <laughs> I think he was kind of thinking, what the heck is wrong with Fastenelli? Because I'm saying we had, I thought we had fire on an upper floor, because we had smoke coming like square out of, the, uh, I believe, the 15th floor on the opposite side of the building, towards the fourth side of the building. And the fire was between two and three. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a duplex apartment on the lower floor, on the second floor, duplex apartment, towards the two side of the building. So I have smoke all the way up, and on the opposite side of the building, I thought maybe it was an arsonist. We had separate fires. Mm-hmm. So I said yeah. that on the radio, and we had a person hanging out the window. I wasn't sure if we were going to do a rope rescue. And he's thinking, what is this guy talking about? Like, And then once he got there, he saw it, and he's like, ah, oh, okay, I can see that. Like, you know, it was kind of like one of those where the book's not matching the movie type deal. Like, yeah. what the heck, what you hear on the radio? But it, it was legit. So I can't speak enough about how everybody operated. When I say it was all hands on deck, I mean, even even the rack firefighters who uh, were from Rescue 3, they were on portable ladders pulling people out, doing stuff. I actually uh, was able to uh, get them a unit citation, which I think I might be the first one to ever get the rack unit a unit citation. But it was 100% legitimate. These guys were on portable ladders, getting people out of windows that would not be here today if they didn't do what they did. Rescue 3, I mean, you know, like... uh, the captain of Rescue 3 was working. He made the, the decision you know, on his own. Because unfortunately, our job, we learn from a lot of, you know, yeah. the, the hard way sometimes, right? So I know years ago, back in 96, I believe, don't quote me, it was before I was on the job, they had the Jimmy Williams fire out in the Rockaways where he unfortunately um, went to the dead end of the hallway, passed the stairs, and he lost his life there, one of our firefighters uh, out in the Rockaways. So uh, I think... The captain had that slide in his head from his mental representation mm-hmm. of, 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 you know, of like his slide tray, his uh, his uh, recognition prime decision-making was, all right, listen, I'm keeping somebody. We had scissors stairs there, and it's a pretty long building. Uh, people were running low on air. You know, it was a bad situation. And uh, he told one of his firefighters, listen, you're going to put your body here and nobody goes past you. And that's what he did. And he acted uh, as basically a jersey barrier for firefighters that were coming down the hallway. They'd hit into him and get right into the stairs because there was gar- there's no doubt in my mind if somebody would have went down the other end yeah. of the hallway, we would have been dealing with the line of duty. As it was, we had what I call silent maydays. Like nobody specifically said mayday or, or, the, or pushed their EAB or anything. But, um, you know, we were taking transmissions. They were on vibe alert. And at a normal fire, I would say to them, all right, listen, uh, I'd say 10-4 to their message, and I'd say, you're going to be relieved. You're out. We'll get somebody else in there. At this fire, there was so many people still to be rescued in there that they just were took their face piece off, and they're still operating. Mm-hmm. When everybody came out of that building, they looked like coal miners. You couldn't tell yeah. if they were engine, truck, right. squad, rescue. Everybody was completely, you know, carbon black, regardless of, you couldn't tell. It was just like, they look like coal miners to me. As much as we're uh, an awesome fire department, l- you know, luck has a has a say at this whole thing. And and uh, fortunately for all of us, I think luck was on our side that day because things went, could have went in a different direction. Yeah. Uh, like one of the biggest things, challenges I had in my head was like, where do I put the fast truck? We have smoke on like every floor. Like the smoke just took off. And like, you know what, if they're going to go in the building, they have to be on, on air. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, it's a second or third floor fire, so I was okay with putting them in the lobby. But I have smoke on 15 where it's, like, charged. Like, where do I, where, 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 I have a firefighter unconscious up there. What do I do? Like, where do I keep these people? On air? Upstairs? I mean, it, it was just so many things that could have went wrong, and luckily they did. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we lost 17 civilians, which is a tragedy. But there's 15 people alive today because of the direct actions of the EMS and, yeah. and fire uh, fighters on the scene doing their, uh, you know, doing their job. Yeah, that's a perfect way to summarize it, I think, because, of course, the headline is 17 people lost their lives. But when you look at it from a human factors perspective and as a firefight, there are successes. Huge, huge success. I mean, yeah, you can't take away from the tragedy, but you got to look at 
Uh, I mean, let's face it, I was a lieutenant and a captain in an engine company. So went on my, I've been on my fair share of EMS runs, CFRD runs, right? Mm -hmm. And not for a lack of trying, everybody does a great job, but I only gotten a few like uh, resuscitations. Most times you're doing CPR, unfortunately, you know, you get them, they can transfer them to the hospital, but a lot of times, unfortunately. Right. So to have 15 people that are in cardiac arrest still alive today from that fire, and not from anything I did. I was just the guy with the radio at the command post trying to organize everything. Uh, incredible, incredible. Um, yeah, really. Okay, so before we wrap up, I mm -hmm. want to pivot away from the fire department for a few minutes. You already mentioned that you're married and you have four children. Yes. So you're married to a physician. Yes. And you have four active older boys. Absolutely. You continue to work on the side as a union stagehand on Broadway, which I love. Yes. So any insight into how you balance all of these uh, obligations? You'll get a different answer from my wife. Uh, <laughs> I think, Yeah, I think I balance it. She might not necessarily agree. But uh, <laughs> our oldest is in college, so yeah. we're paying for that. The other three are in Catholic school, so we're paying for that. So um, I, I really, while the FDNY pay is awesome, you know, it's like the old thing. No matter how much you make, you always need more, right? And my kids are very active in uh, sports. Is that true? It's yeah. complex. Just simplify. Uh, it's I have to simplify it. Yeah, yeah. You're right about that. Yeah. Uh, that ship has sailed for me, though, because they're involved in so much. Two of them are driving. I got a text the other day from my one son. Not good morning. How are you? What's going on? It says, I need gas in my car. Like, I, like what? So, you know, when you have kids, it's like, that's it. It never ends. So, you know, we're paying for all that stuff. So, um, as far as balancing, uh, I can't say no too often to side work because I always have to do, you know, always always something. You got to pay uh, AAU basketball. There's always something coming up. But we try to, uh, you know, when I'm off, I'm off. When we have, like, family time, like, if I'm off on a Sunday from either job, we kind of stick together. We have a puppy now, so we do stuff with the kids. One, one guy's in college, so he's away at college. But the other three are home. So, uh, you know, it makes you, I think, value your family time even more because uh, you know what's kind of, um, you know, time is fleeting, right? I mean, the kids are yeah. getting bigger. They want to do their own thing now. So, you know, how many more years do we have where they want to go on vacation with us still and do everything? So we try to maximize that. And, uh, you know, my wife is on board with that as well. She, she values our family time. So we try to have family dinners together. Uh, like on Sundays, if we're all off, we'll, we'll eat together. And, and uh, during the week, it's tough. You know, who's got sports schedules? Who's got practices? I'm working. She's working. We try to make it work. But um, it's tough. It's mm -hmm. tough. It's not a... Uh, I, I try to balance it the best I can, but I, I'll be honest with you that uh, a lot of times it's out of balance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's like you said, it's a season of life. Yes. It's temporary. Mm -hmm. You just have to maximize this I moment. remember days when I was a lieutenant and captain, like, you know, driving up the Palisades Parkway, maybe a little faster than the speed limit because she's in her car in the driveway and it's like, Tag, you're it. You got the kids. Like, they, they yeah. can't be left alone. So I would be like waiting, like flying up the parkway to get home. Now it's like that, that, that doesn't, you know, it's, yeah. it's not the case. Uh, matter of fact, I hated working. When my kids were younger, you know, we had four of them. Uh, I hated working the up and downs. We worked the day into the night because I come home the next day and I'm tired. You're running around or whatever. And they're like, oh, dad, what are we doing today? And I'm like, oh, no, nah. I'm like, uh, you know, now I can care less. Do you prioritize sleep now? Yeah, now I love You're making up for it? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> now I don't mind the up and downs. I come home to an empty house. It's like, great, whatever. I can hang out, take a nap, whatever. It's, it's great. Everybody's at yeah. work and school. Yeah, everything but, is uh, temporary. It is. It is. And you got to just appreciate. Uh, that's why, like, you know, like I. Earlier I said, that I wish I spent more time as a firefighter, and I do. And I wish I spent more time in each rank because you get to appreciate it, and then you appreciate it even more once you're out of that rank. Oh, you know what? I miss this, or I miss that, or I miss these guys. Or, but uh, there's so many great places to work on this job that it's it's uh, it's on, it's an honor and a privilege to, to see each different rank for what the rank is and to get to experience different parts of uh, the city. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I learn from them, and hopefully I, I pass on some stuff that they can learn from me, maybe. Uh, so it's, it's great to see the different parts of the city. Oh, my gosh. I know that the listeners are going to get a lot of valuable insights from this ah, conversation. Yeah. Thanks. I just want to end by talking about Leadership Under Fire. Yes. Because in addition to serving as a core member of the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative team, you serve as an advisor with LUF, helping leaders in other departments around the country to build and implement operationally focused human performance programs. So in what ways do you think MPI reinforces the principles and concepts that seasoned leaders have long demonstrated? And in what ways do you think MPI is unique in preparing leaders to perform under pressure at complex fires and emergencies and then make the most sense of performance and outcomes? Oh, That's there's, a there's, long there's a lot, there's a lot wow. there. Yeah, you might have to like break it down <laughs> step by step. Um, no, so um, uh, first and foremost, it's a, it's a privilege uh, for me to be able to do all this stuff, right? So I know Jason uh, is, you know, we when I work with him with Luff, we get to go to these different departments. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I know that we're very fortunate in the FDNY with, with everything that we have, resources. resources and everything. Yeah, so we're talking to some departments where they don't have a, 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 a fraction of what we have. So I got to be measured in how I, you know, I don't want to like beat my chest and say, oh, right, well, we do it. This is the way to, no, I don't do that. I, I feel like I show them how we do it and I, and I think one of the biggest things is, um, especially coming from the older generations, like uh, the people that came on in the, the 60s and 70s, the guys that came out of like World War II and Vietnam, all this leadership stuff and all this uh, m- mental performance stuff, they did it. They just didn't have terms for it, right? Like that, what they did, like the tactical pauses they talk about and like the breathing and like all this stuff, that's, that was normal to them. They didn't have any language around it. So I think the biggest thing is getting the language around it so it's kind of we understand what it is. And maybe we were getting away from doing some of the stuff they did, but uh, I think they were getting back to it uh, in the tactical drills that they do uh, at the Rock and stuff. Uh, we've run those, and, and people give rave reviews. Even people with time on the job in different ranks, lieutenants, captains, firefighters with 25, 30 years, I'm like, oh, this is some of the best stuff we've done because uh, it's human stuff. And, and I think one of the biggest messages that I like to, to let everybody know uh, when I work with these other people is that it's it's all normal. It's all human, normal stuff. Like, like I was kind of beating myself up, and I know other people do too when you go through, and thank God I've never had, you know, uh, a line of duty, but, like, I've had plenty of civilians lost a life at fires, and uh, you take it personally, and, 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 uh, and now it's like, no, you know what? That's normal. You're supposed to feel this stuff. You're supposed to be able to, you know, you, you don't want to. Even being aware of the things that you that can happen to you, like, you know, auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, the, 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 the spatial orientations off. We've all gone to fires where, like, you go back into a room. It's like, this is where I was. It doesn't match the picture yeah. you had in your head. Um, but, but, but knowing that and, and then working with, with other departments and working with my firefighters and my, my battalion and other people I come across on the job, explaining to them that, like, listen, this is totally normal. Um, this is what you should watch out for especially being a chief, like I'm giving a transmission and the guy stops answering me. Well, you know what? He's not doing that on purpose. It's probably because it's auditory exclusion. I'm looking at the bigger picture now, like how I ask my questions. If, I, if I'm peppering a guy with questions, if he was like teetering on the right side of the curve, well, guess what? I just pushed him over on the right side of the curve. Um, maybe if I use his first name in the transmission, uh, you know, Battalion 18, uh, Patty. Hey, listen, Patty, when you, just by doing that interaction, maybe that I humanize that narrative, that might bring you back on the curve and maybe you don't go right or center so much. Um, so I try to bring that to what I bring to the other, like with the leadership on the fire stuff, that like I said, it's totally normal. We're all human. There's things you can do. Like, are we going to as many fires and stuff as we as they did back in the 70s and 60s and 80s and everything? No, we're not. But you can go to as many fires as you want in your head if you do visualization, right? 
And if you talk about it, the exchange of information at Change of Tours, hey, you had a fire last night, what'd you do? How'd you do this? How'd you do that? Or vice versa, they ask you. You're building those mental models in your head, right? That, that recognition prime decision making. So then when you're really in that situation, boom, you got something to fall back on. So I like to, to use my experience, uh, experiences that I keep, I'm still gathering now, you know, it's, it, I'm a work in progress, obviously. Uh, we all are. Uh, I try to pass that along uh, when I do the love stuff, just to show them, hey, listen, this is what works for me. Like I know when I'm being, uh, when I, Jason likes to say the pressure exceeds the privilege. For me personally, I feel like I get a dry mouth. I know without even looking at my biometric device yeah. that I, my heart rate's elevated from emotion. So I know that's my telltale sign. So that's why my, my go-to is I keep a bottle of water in the chief's car. So as I'm responding, like when I go to put my gear in for change of tours, I put everything the same way. I have a, a water bottle there. It helps me stay hydrated, and it takes care of my dry mouth. And when you drink water, what do you do? Breathe. Absolutely. So that settles me down. Five beats, ten beats per minute. I don't know the number, but whatever it is, maybe it's enough to keep me from going right to center, or, or more so than, than I normally would if I didn't do that. So it's very individualized, and I just kind of... we. we I think Jimmy Ginty said it best, and I kind of use this in my, in my frame of reference when uh, I, I talk to people about MPI and also other departments when we do work. It's basically like a, um, well, I can't think of the word, a uh, when you salad go to bar. salad bar. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's the salad bar. <laughs> you might not like cucumbers. You might like olives. So don't take those. But take the tomatoes and take the lettuce and, and use Russian dressing. Whatever works for you, take it. We're going to present everything to you, and it's very individualized. Whatever seems to work, try them all. If this works for you, go with it. If it doesn't, no problem. Don't do it. But um, I think that's a great way to look at all this stuff because uh, we're all individuals. We all operate differently. We'll have a different way, a different style. Um, we're a collection of all of our experiences. And um, again, I've already changed stuff. Like, you know, things I do now, if I could just step back for a second, uh, going back to, um, you know, evolving. So I've been a chief for almost eight years. Uh, I think it takes like a good close to five years till you start feeling comfortable in that rank. Uh, I know all the players in my area, which is key. And we have a lot of technology in the fire department. We're super lucky that we yeah. have so much resources, right? So by the book, our, our, uh, our SOP in the FDNY is like, you get to a job, first do BC, your aide is supposed to stay, in, or your battalion firefighter is supposed to stay in the vehicle and monitor EFAS, which is electronic fire ground accountability, until the fast truck arrives, which in my area is not usually too long because I'm like in the center of the Bronx, people are coming from all different directions. But nonetheless, he's supposed to be there and uh, until the fast truck relieves him, the one member, mm -hmm. and he monitors it. Uh, one of the things we've learned doing leadership under fire and mental performance is that two of the most stressful positions in the fire service are the first two battalion chief and the first two engine chauffeur mm -hmm. because mainly you're operating alone, yeah. right? So we have technology now. We have the portable EFAS. So my policy, my, my personal thing, when I'm working, and other chiefs I know do this also, uh, namely my mutual partner because he's involved in the tactical communications uh, world, Chris Coppola, um, our thing is, as soon as we hear a box for smoke or fire, when we first do, we turn on the portable EFAS in the rig, and we have an understanding with our aides. Listen, as soon as we get there, like you're going you're gonna to use the battalion vehicle to, to block traffic because inevitably the first engine and first truck go in, guess who comes in behind them? Four or five civilian cars. Now I can't get my second truck in, and it messes up my operation. I don't want that. So my aides know. They pull up. They're going to block the end of the street. I'm going to get out, get my stuff on, walk down the block, do my thing. They grab that portable EFAS. As soon as the second dude's coming, they back the car out of the way and park it. They grab that portable EFAS and they come to the front of the first dude truck. And that's where I want my aid, in the front of the first dude truck because that's they're in front of the fire building. And I've had plenty of fires. They start going sideways. Um, it's tough to get on the radio. And, and, and I might not want to get on the radio because there's like valuable stuff people yeah. want to say. There's 55 of us on the scene and it all hands with a handy talkie. Even though I'm the chief, 
I might not have the most important thing to say, or even if I do have something important, I might not have airtime to get on. So I don't leave my aide halfway down the block. We have a technology now that can fill that gap. He's monitoring EFAS. It's just portable. He's in a somewhat quiet environment in the front of the first due truck, whether it be the officer side or the chauffeur side, depending upon where the fire building is. All I have to do is turn, and if you're my aide, and say, hey, Patty, it could be a, a hand signal or it could be a verbal. Transmit a second alarm. Give me a victim tracking chief. Give me another engine for CFO. Whatever it is, I don't have to get on the air and the handy talking and waste, right. you know, or take up time. Maybe I can't do that. And he's still monitoring EFAS. So if somebody hits the EAB, he's doing his job, but he's near me. And psychologically for me, I have my help 10 feet behind me. So it kind of lowers my internal stress of being alone so somewhat because my age right there. And he's my, he's, he's watching for my blind spots basically. Right. So, um, as opposed to being halfway down the block. Um, and this, that's just one example of how technology fills that gap, and it can kind of work in the human right. factors perspective in that it's lowering my internal stress, and it's, you know, it's giving me real game time. Like, I need, I need this, and you're right there. I can just look at you, and I can say, hey, get me this. And uh, technology is helping us out with that. So um, all these things are great, and I think they're uh, – but, but there also is a downside to, like, like – I'll tell you a quick story about Twin Parks, and we talked about uh, Jack Mara. Yep. Like, whether you're at the company picnic or a fifth alarm, that guy is, like, super, <laughs> like, calm, right? His brother Tom's the same way. Uh, we had them as the as uh, both of them, actually, at the last MPI week-long as the uh, fireside chat guests that we invited back. But uh, about a week later, after uh, Prospect, uh, after uh, Twin Parks, rather, Jack calls me. And now they're a different battalion, different division, but I run with them routinely. He's like, uh, he's like, Jeff, Chief, I see you're working. He goes, would you, would you mind coming by? I go, yeah, of course not, Jack. I mean, they were right there. So we, we go right over there, and we stop. We have a cup of coffee, and he hands me a piece of paper. And the piece of paper is a schematic of how the windows are in the Twin Parks building. Mm -hmm. And uh, oddly enough, uh, I had spoke to Joe Carlson, the Division Three commander, mm -hmm. when he was a battalion chief in the 4-3 battalion. They have, like, identical buildings today uh, to the Twin Parks in the 4-3. So, like, uh, we, we could have a round two of this whole thing. So uh, I hope not, but we could. So anyhow, and he was familiar with those buildings in the 4-3. So anyhow, um, Jack Mara shows me this schematic, and it... Only one window in the front of Twin Parks was from the fire apartment. The other, like, seven or eight were in the rear, which I never saw. That's where the fire was coming out. He handed me this paper. Now, I'm at the kitchen table in Engine 46 and Ladder 27. No stress. I'm having a cup of coffee with a bunch of guys that I know. Like, there's, like, no stress at all. And we're all having a few laughs and stuff. And, you know, it's a week after this tragedy. And he says to me, oh, wouldn't you have liked to have had this at the fire? And I looked at it. And I get it. He had best of intentions. Like, yeah, this is intel for you. And I, I said to him, you know what? Uh, no, because this would have destroyed me. Like, I had no bandwidth left in my head. This would have been like reading hieroglyphics to me. I would have been like, I, I'm actually having trouble right now at a kitchen table, calm, having a cup of coffee, trying to figure out what's what here. Could you imagine under the pressure of that event looking at this? Like, this would, if you had it and gave it to maybe an aide or somebody, another chief to like kind of decipher and give me like the Cliff's notes, okay, maybe. But for me to do that, so so going back to my, my thing of like uh, uh, in the face of complexity, simplicity is the answer. We only have so much bandwidth as humans, mm -hmm. and um, technology is great. But you got the drone, you got this, you got the EFAS, you got. Uh, that's great if you have a great command staff and people are helping you out. You have your aide or the division aide or maybe another chief coming in or the resource unit leader can look at stuff for you. But they got to feed you just little snippets because y y you can't. Uh, you know, as much as you like to think you can do all that stuff, honestly, it's too much to handle. As the you know, you're gonna get overload, and um, they got to just feed you what you need, and that's it. Otherwise, let you do your thing. 
uh, it could be too much. Yeah. Um, and, and that also adds a whole other layer we could talk about another hour uh, of like the whole citizen effect where you, where you kind of oh. know in the back of your mind, you know, everybody's videoing you, everybody's listening to your radio transmission. Right. Some guy in Iowa who's listening to a scanner's yeah. listening, a uh, YouTube, uh, you know, With you name it. and, Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So that weighs on not only me, everybody. I mean, you know, you're, you're playing on prime time these days. Right. You know, you might as well be uh, on the NFL or something, yeah. you know, because it's, uh, everybody's watching and everybody and watches. optics matter more sometimes than uh, absolutely. the information. And it's we're, wild. you know, we are the, the premier fire department in the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's looking to us for everything. So, um, you know, we're, which is great. I love that fact. But it's also uh, an added stress. And uh, yeah. as long as I'm doing great, yeah, show my highlight reel. But if I, <laughs> uh, if I'm not having my best day, uh, it's uh, maybe not, not, uh, not post that on YouTube. You, huh? you bring up so many good points. And I think you're right. We're going to have to bring you back on for another episode. Uh, no problem. But yeah, this yeah, is yeah, enough yeah. to digest Absolutely. for one sitting. So thank you so much uh, for taking pleasure. the time to do this. Yeah, I'm so happy we were able to connect and, and have this conversation. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Patty. Appreciate it. Thank you. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.